Well, today we begin a new series in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's worth opening up 1 Samuel uh, now. Uh, the Bible's in your pews, I think it's page 272. Um, and really, if, if you were to sum up 1 Samuel in one word, that word would be leadership. 1 Samuel is all about leadership. Uh, throughout the pages of this book, we'll meet three of the greatest leaders of God's people. We'll meet uh, Samuel today. In time, we'll come across Israel's first king, Saul, and then the great king, King David. And uh, this, this book, which is all about leadership, takes us back some 3,000 years from today, uh, back to about 1050 BC, in a period where this whole issue of leadership was very much in the air. There was a leadership crisis in Israel, in God's people. The two centuries that uh, led up to the events that we read in 1 Samuel had been a period of immense social upheaval. Again and again, uh, God had had to raise up a judge to rescue his people and to bring justice to Israel. But again and again, God's people responded by rejecting God's ways. This whole period is summed up for us perfectly in Judges 21-25 where we're told of God's people that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so into this sort of malaise of uh, directionlessness in God's people, into a nation that is uh, still very tiny, new, fragile, a nation under pressure from uh, its neighbours, much bigger neighbours, and weakened by all sorts of internal struggles and corruption, comes this question, what sort of leader can take them out of all of this? What sort of leader can possibly direct them uh, in the ways that God wants them to go? So that's, I guess, the questions that are in the air as we come to this book. But as you open 1 Samuel in chapter 1, while this this whole issue of leadership is there, for starters we're zoomed in on a much more domestic scene. We zoom in on one household in this nation and one woman in that household, Hannah. And really the whole of the first chapter of 1 Samuel records the amazing chain of events that leads up to the miraculous birth of her first child, Samuel. Hannah is married, we're told, to Elkanah. She is barren and is the object of much derision, continual mocking from Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah. Again and again she is mocked. And so as we meet her in uh, chapter 1, she comes before God in absolute desperation. Eli, the chief priest, sees her praying to her God and mistakes her desperation for drunkenness But after a while he realises her faith and her prayer are genuine and he grants his blessing on her prayer. We pick up the story uh, today in 1 Samuel 2, page 272, if you haven't turned to it. And as we turn there, let me ask you a question which I think hangs over this passage. Do you believe in God? Seems a silly question to ask in a church, doesn't it? of a congregation that has just affirmed its belief in God as we do week in, week out in the words of the creed. But let me ask it again. Do you believe in God? Do you know what it actually means to say what we have just affirmed together? Or let me ask it another way. What, what would your life look like if you didn't believe in God? Would it be much different? Would the way you view your world be different? I mean, apart from the fact that you wouldn't be here this morning, would it be much different other than that? The shape of it, your take on life, your plans for the years ahead, 
Does your belief in God make much of an impact in the day to day of your life? Because that's the challenge of 1 Samuel 2. It should. Believing in God changes everything. And yet it's easy, isn't it, to treat a belief in God, a statement uh, in a creed, as just part of our outlook on life. It's a factor and an influence maybe, but just one of many that shapes who we are and the way we think and the way we live. But the truth is, genuine belief in God means seeing the whole world and life in the world differently, entirely. You see, to try and domesticate a belief like that, to try and compartmentalise it, such that it has no consequences maybe other than coming to church or reading the Bible from time to time or or being confirmed or, or communion or baptism, those sort of things, is to miss the huge impact genuine faith has on a human life. If there is no God, then being here this morning is a complete waste of time, isn't it? But if there is a God, well, being here is just the beginning because now everything changes. Values, ambitions, joys, sorrows, loves, hates, motives, confidence, fears, the lot. Everything changes. Do you believe that? Do you want to see what genuine faith looks like when it goes for a walk, when it's lived out? Well, come with me to 1 Samuel 2 and we'll meet a woman who has much to teach us about what faith in God looks like. It's page 272, again, if you haven't uh, found it yet. And really, we're going to be zooming in on the first 10 verses of chapter 2, the 10 verses that capture a prayer from Hannah's lips. And in one sense, it's a simple prayer. It's a prayer in response to this amazing event of the birth of her first child. She is joyfully praising her God for his provision. But very quickly this prayer blows out into something much, much bigger with implications for all the world and all history. And it is through the scope of this prayer that we're going to see the huge difference belief in God makes to a life. And so let's learn from Hannah. And I really want to pick up three lessons of what belief in God looks like from this woman. The first one we pick up in the very first verse. As far as Hannah is concerned, to believe in God means that you find your joy in him. The opening lines of this prayer make sure that uh, we can't mistake Hannah's faith in God as half-hearted or insincere. She rejoices in her incomparable God. Have a look at verse 1. It's a very different prayer to the one she offered back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, we meet Hannah in prayer, deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, childless, the object of mocking. She is broken, we're told in chapter 1, verse 8, broken hearted. But now that same heart has been knitted back together by her God. That once broken heart now rejoices in the Lord. And in this I think we have our first lesson of what belief in God looks like. It is a heart that rejoices in God. It's important to realise here that as far as the Hebrews were concerned, the heart wasn't just a part of a person, it was the very centre of them, the very core of their being, their thoughts, their plans, their will, as well as deep-set emotions. All of that is now focused in confident joy in her God. Let me ask you, is that where your heart is at? 
Does God satisfy your heart in a way nothing else can? That's where she is. But what holds your heart together? What is your delight, your joy? It can be silly things, isn't it? Uh, it can be things like a sporting event. I remember back 1999 Cricket World Cup. Sorry to bring this up. But uh, <laughs> here we were in the semi-final against South Africa. It looked impossible to win and somehow we won and I was like jumping for joy. Stupid things like that can give us joy. But sometimes they're great things, aren't they? Family, friends, success or progress at work, all sorts of things can be our delight, our joy. But the Christian says, even amidst good things such as these, that if all else was to fall down, God is enough. The Lord is good. He will satisfy my heart, for he is my treasure, says Hannah. Do you believe that? Are you with the psalmist who says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth, there is nothing beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what Hannah teaches us. Second lesson she gives us is in verse 2. To believe in God means that you know that there is no other. Belief in God has at its core the uniqueness of our God. There is none holy like the Lord, says Hannah. There is no rock like our God. To believe in God is to know that the Lord is utterly holy. His ways are perfect. His ways are good. And nowhere will you find a goodness directed towards you like the holiness of our Lord. For there is none like him. To believe in God is to know that he is the rock like nothing else is in life. That as far as Hannah is concerned, God can't be set aside, set beside other options that might be the focus of our confidence or our hope or our security. God gives me security but so does my mortgage and my family and that's not Hannah's take on it. And to believe in God is to know that compared to him, all other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that? Test your heart this morning. Is God your rock? Is he your hope, your security, that if all other ground did fall, he would be enough? And test your heart. Do you trust the Lord's goodness, his kindness towards you? Enough to obey him? Enough to trust his word even when it flies in the face of your culture or everything in your head? Do you trust him? The Christian says there is no one beside him. He has my heart, my trust and my obedience. A third lesson Hannah gives us is in uh, the body of the prayer, verses 3 to 8. And she shows us that to believe in God means seeing things clearly. Within these verses we see how radically different everything looks when you believe in God. And in verse 3 we are led in on one of the big realities of life, something that if you don't see it clearly you cannot hope to live rightly or well. You see, what belief in God does for us is this. It helps us stop pretending. Pretending that we are the masters of our own destiny, pretending that our actions are unseen and go unchecked by anything beyond our peers. 
Because in the face of human self-sufficiency and self-justification, Hannah speaks of a God who knows. The God revealed in scriptures doesn't stand distant from us, uninvolved and unaware. He knows everything. Nothing is secret. In the end, human pride falls silent before a God who knows and all human actions need to be seen in light of the fact that they will be weighed by this God. It's true of Panina's cruelty to Hannah. It's true of all injustice we see. It's even true of the day-to-day of our own lives. Our God knows. And what we see from verse 4 onwards is the implications of this reality played out. We see a a catalogue of the sort of things that generate human pride and self-sufficiency and we see how differently they look when you factor in the incomparable God, the God who knows. Let's take a look at some of the ones that Hannah mentions. Have a look at verse 4. She says, The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. As we go on in 1 Samuel, we'll see that the bows of the warriors are indeed strong. In fact, in a few chapters, the bows of the Philistines will bring the downfall of Israel and her king. And yet, weighed before God, they break, like the chariots of Egypt did in the past. Do you believe God is powerful like this? The simple fact is all human rule operates before a God who knows and before him they will be silenced. It is as Psalm 2 puts it, it says, Why do the nations conspire and plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. You're kidding, says God. It's great news, isn't it? When you think this week of the brutal, godless rule in Burma, or the greedy hatred of, say, the Zimbabwean government, such rule will be weighed by God and it will be broken. What comfort this is, but also what great warning. God will do this to all human self-rule, including any person or any household that would set itself up against him, that would assume that he is not King, as Psalm 2 says, Therefore you kings of men, you rulers of households, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Hannah picks up another one for us in verse 5. She says, Those who are full will hire themselves out for food. Later in 1 Samuel in chapter 25, we'll meet a rich man who, who feeds himself like a king but refuses to give anything to the strangers at his gates who are begging for food and drink. In the end, he finds his stomach does not save him. You know, people with plenty seem that they'll never come up short for anything. That is unless you take into account that there is no rock like our God. And so Hannah goes on, those who are hungry will hunger no more. That same story in 1 Samuel 25 The strangers who are refused food by the rich man, God richly provides for them. Hannah is trying to tell us here that in the end, satisfaction of human need does not depend finally 
on human resources or resourcefulness. And so given this reality, let me ask you again, do you believe in God? Does he satisfy you? Are you content in his provision? Or are you worried about having enough? You're not not quite at that point yet. Worried about being able to give maybe your children all you think they need. Well, the one who believes in God knows that human security cannot ultimately be measured by human prosperity. Do you believe that? Human security and human prosperity are not linked. Sounds hard, doesn't it? Sounds fanciful. But it bears out in reality. I was listening uh, during the week to an interview with Alan Greenspan on BBC4 on Friday. Alan Greenspan, probably one of the greatest economic minds of our time, led the, uh, the American economy for, for decades. A man who would know whether human prosperity and security are linked. This is his take on our, our desire for more. He said, One of the reasons we never seem to win that game, despite our prosperity, is that the pursuit of prosperity seems to create a considerable sense of unease. Angst is part of the system. Fundamentally, societies have to make choices as to whether they want more material well-being or more peace because, regrettably, we cannot have both. You cannot keep getting richer and have peace of mind, says Alan Greenspan. The scriptures have been saying that for centuries. But we humans are slow learners. As Jesus himself says in Luke 12, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body and what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow and reap. They have no storeroom or barn and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? The Christian whose heart is satisfied in the Lord, who knows there is no rock like our God, sees this very clearly. Do you? The final uh, example of Hannah's that I want to pick up is in verse 6. She says, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. You know, it's often argued wrongly that the Old Testament doesn't know anything about the idea of the resurrection from the dead and yet here's proof otherwise. The Lord's ability to change any human situation stretches even to life and death. Do you believe this? That the days of your life are numbered by your God that he brings down to the grave, not accident or illness or infirmity. The Lord gives life and he takes it away. Do you believe that? Because Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Only those who do, who are taught to number their days as a precious gift from his hand, can hope to live wisely with those days. But even more than that, do you see what else Hannah is telling us in verse 6? She shows us that the one who believes in God, who sees things clearly, knows that with God there is more to be said even after death. For the Lord is the one who makes alive, who raises the dead, 
Do you see how much your vision changes when you believe in God? Absolutely everything is in his holy, mighty and very good hands. Poverty, riches, fame, ignominy, all are in his power. God determines these things. They're not in our control, nor in the control of others or economic or social forces, not even governments. The Lord sends, humbles, raises, lifts, seats, unseats. Let me ask you as we come to the final two verses of this passage, is this really believable? Does this worldview ring true? I mean, it's an incredible vision, isn't it, of everything seemingly upside down. But it's not the world that we experience, is it? It doesn't seem to be. You read the papers today, you, you buy the Sunday Times today and I challenge you to find this reality somewhere on the front page. Where do we see this actually playing out in reality? Where is the evidence that would make this vision realistic, that would render belief in God valid? Well, such evidence does exist. Powerful, undeniable evidence. We've seen it already in the life of Hannah, how God, the Lord Almighty, as she calls him, does the impossible for a barren woman. We'll see it in the coming weeks as one Samuel gives an account of a sequence of events where all of these realities are played out before our eyes. Every bit of it. But even at this point, you could be uh, still shaky when it comes to your confidence in this vision. Yes, we see it in Hannah. Yes, we'll see it in 1 Samuel. But is that it? What of now? Was this just some golden moment in, in history where the gravity of normal human experience was turned upside down just for a moment? When the weak were strong, the hungry filled and even death gave way to life before normal transmission resumed. Well, the Bible's answer to that is no. Because what we have here in Hannah's prayer is how things are, how they really are. The possibilities that do present themselves when you know there is none like the Lord. Hannah's vision is a picture of reality for all the ends of the earth, for all time. And the only way you will not see that is if you have forgotten or have never seen the massive realities that are laid before our feet in the final two verses, 9 and 10. It's four big things that we need to see if we're going to see this clearly. Firstly, to not see life as Hannah does is to not know, as we're told at the end of verse 8, that the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and upon them he has set the world. You see, the world we live in does not run along principles that are in some, have some kind of independence from, a, from our God. The whole earth, including us, is his and is dependent on him. Secondly, to not see life as Hannah does is to not see, as we read in verse 10, that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. All human activity of all time in all places, will come before this God. From the dark days in Burma to the day-to-day of our normal lives, he will judge the ends of the earth. And thirdly, to not see life as Hannah does is to forget that when he comes to judge, only those who trust him, his faithful ones, as he calls them, will be shielded from that judgment. And those who live opposed to him will be shattered 
says verse 10. And finally, and most importantly, to not see life as Hannah does is to fail to see that he has done all these things by his king. See it there in verse 10, his anointed, Messiah, Christ. You want proof that there is none like the Lord, that our God knows? You want proof that Hannah's vision is real, that God can turn things around? Then let me ask you, did you hear the other prayer that was read out for us this morning from Luke's Gospel? A prayer on the lips of a woman many years later. Mary. She had been told her child will be a great king. The king promised here in 1 Samuel 2.10 and she is told that his kingdom will never end. And Mary knew this king, her son, God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one, would turn the world upside down. You see, Hannah's experience is no one-off golden moment. This is normal transmission for our God. For he is the God of the impossible who gives a barren woman a child. He is the God who can turn anything around. And if you want to see the extent of his capacity to do that, if you want to believe that there is none like our God, look to Jesus. Born not just of a barren woman but a virgin woman. And through her child... God brings about the impossible rescue for you and I. You want impossible? Try this. But as for you, you are dead. Dead in your sins. Living as if the God described in 1 Samuel 2 2 didn't exist. Living as if he didn't know and if he wouldn't judge. You are dead. And as for you, you are objects of wrath, says Ephesians 2. Standing with those who oppose the Lord. Standing with those who are about to feel the thunder from heaven as God came in judgment. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been delivered. You want proof Hannah's testimony is true? Look to Jesus. The one who, like Hannah, poured out his heart before God as he cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he did it, he didn't just pour out his heart, he poured out his very life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, you and I. He takes our punishment and by doing so turns things around forever. Our great enemies, sin and death, defeated forever. Hannah says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Are you with her? Let's pray.